Today on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast, we have a guest who's seen the alts and crypto worlds from multiple angles. Don Stalter is a partner at Global Founders Capital, where he focuses primarily on the U.S. early stage venture market. He has a deep operating background as a founder and operator at some of tech's leading marketplace businesses. He co-founded CityDeal, which was acquired by Groupon. He then built Groupon's international offices in Europe and Asia. He subsequently led business development at Airbnb globally and launched multiple offices organically and through M&A. At GFC, he's been an early investor in fintech titans like Brex, Checker, Deal, and more. He's also invested in a number of crypto funds, so we had a fascinating conversation about how VC funds can approach investing into crypto funds and company. This was a fascinating conversation with a really thoughtful VC. Thanks, Don, for coming on the Altco's Mainstream Podcast. We're going Don, welcome to the Elko's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks, Michael. So good to see you. Uh, good to see you too, man. It's been too long. How you been? Way too long. Really well. I was at the lobby conference recently, meeting with a variety of software and fintech entrepreneurs or even some crypto entrepreneurs in Maui. It's David Hornick's event. And um, just actively been evaluating a variety of opportunities. It's an exciting time. Well, we have a lot to talk about in regards to both how you've thought about things in the venture world, because you've been in venture for a while, but then also how you're thinking about the crypto world, because you're investing in both companies and funds at GFC that are either crypto adjacent or directly in the crypto space. We'd love to get into all that. First, I want to hear your background because you have a fascinating background, both on the operating side and the investing side. Let's start there. Thanks so much, Michael. I think from the very beginning, when I was 11 years old, I was a bit of an entrepreneur. I took a lemonade stand and put it on its head by taking a radio flyer and actually selling lemonade door to door, navigating different prices, depending on the neighborhood, depending on the flavor of lemonade. Fast forward four or five years, I was addicted to an online game called Ultima Online, an MMO where you could collect castles, you could collect houses, you could set up teams of miners to mine for gold, and you could forge swords, and you could forge all sorts of other virtual objects. Now, this was you know back in the days of dial-up modems, but we could collect and we could aggregate all of these different magical virtual items within our own characters. And then we could sell those items on eBay. When I was 16, 17 years old, I made a killing selling virtual items like silver swords of vanquishing and magical bows and arrows and all sorts of other things on eBay, which I thought was really interesting because what are virtual items? What are microtransactions? They've been around for quite a long time. Then went to the University of Chicago, studied economics, lived abroad in Berlin for about a year, spent a bunch of time in, in France, and then joined Credit Suisse's tech M&A group in San Francisco, where we prosecuted transactions like Google's acquisition of YouTube, Google's acquisition of a double click. But I was always fascinated by virtual economies. We looked at the Dina transaction while I was there, if you remember the Japanese games business and a whole variety of others. And it was just fascinating how global and how 
how expansive a lot of these MMOs, online games, virtual economies were and how they've evolved you know, over time to where we are today. How do you think that your passion for and understanding of the gaming space has informed how you both think about you've done a lot in payments and now some of your payments businesses are thinking about crypto or companies you've worked at like Airbnb could potentially get into crypto. And then also you invest in a lot of crypto too. How has some of those early foundational experiences that you've talked about impacted how you've thought about the world of payments and then crypto? Well, I was at Credit Suisse. We used to moonlight as a group of analysts on a variety of different websites looking to develop our own apps. One of those websites was MySpace, of course, where there existed a virtual economy around music. We thought a lot about it as sort of a marketplace. We were just fascinated by how people could make money in terms of microtransactions on a platform. I became very, very excited about marketplaces in general. And after having worked at Jeffrey's Growth Fund uh, in, in London, ended up building a business that sold to Groupon. And there it was really looking at local transactions and local economies across the UK, across Europe, across Asia, and just understanding sort of the social dynamics, the social physics about how business was done offline and online and you know how to build product around that. I think that sort of dovetails into what I did at Airbnb, which was a lot around business development, around acquiring businesses globally in order to integrate into Airbnb, around furthering the driving of traffic around local listings in a bunch of different geographies and developing out KPIs to you know make sure that we could convert hosts, we can convert guests on another level. Now, payments at Airbnb was always a very, very fascinating uh, and important problem since day zero because the business itself grew virally across the United States, Europe, Asia, Australia, but was based in San Francisco. So how the heck do you make a payment work in Edinburgh or how do you make a payment work in Kuala Lumpur? You got to transfer the funds from you know the United States there or from there to the United States and cross-border Forex became an extremely, extremely important thing for Airbnb. Insurance insurance became a very important thing around payments for Airbnb. That whole system was completely streamlined over time. If you looked at booking.com, booking had a variety of locations, discrete standalone businesses that did all of their transactions under discrete brands from booking.com. And you didn't really see a lot of global cross traffic for that business. You didn't see a lot of global cross traffic from Booking.com to Agora, for example, which was our Southeast Asian location. But with Airbnb, because it is one discrete global brand, you see travel corridors from Sydney to Tucson, Arizona. And how the heck do you make those payments work? We had to build a novel infrastructure underneath the hood and hire you know, hundreds of engineers. We had to build out a trust and safety team to make sure that KYC and other compliance areas were focused on. And ultimately, Airbnb, people have described as a massive payments business. Lawrence Tosi, the former CFO, actually built out what some people call a hedge fund inside of Airbnb, where the balance sheet was literally being traded uh, globally as sort of a Forex desk. They were accruing significant profits, in some cases losses, but it was quite exciting to see how that marketplace evolved. The exciting element of Airbnb, too, is that it's sort of an online to offline platform. It's almost a virtual world in its own right, where hosts are able to describe where they live, how they live with such a level of like vividness that people become so engaged with the platform and almost use it as a trading platform or as a transaction platform. If you look today at the Ukraine, for example, and with what's going on, 
with the war in Ukraine, there are a whole variety of folks who are making donations to citizens via Airbnb. It's being used as a payments platform. It's almost being used as like a GoFundMe or a fundraising platform, a philanthropic payments platform. I think the kind of spirit of Airbnb, while it may be sort of consumery is really boils down to a a massive fintech business. You bring up a really interesting point, which is around the idea and theme of asset ownership. This is very different perturbation of that, which is the fact that people own these assets. They are hosts of homes that they then get paid on to rent them out. That's different than, say, owning an NFT, which we've talked about on Alco's Mainstream before, owning a sports card. But people are creating liquidity around that. They are enabling people to lend against these assets. It's a really interesting theme that I think the alt space is trying to figure out. In some respects, that's kind of what what Airbnb is doing in that context. Like you just said, people have their assets, these houses, and people are effectively, it's it's not quite a lending product, but people are donating to them because they have ownership of these assets. More broadly speaking, how does this idea of asset ownership change the alt space and the crypto space as you see it? Mm -hmm. I think the ownership piece on Airbnb is an intriguing one because there are a variety of hosts and guests. Hosts and guests are, you know, synonymous in a number of cases because it's a peer-to-peer platform, but hosts oftentimes don't actually own the properties that they're renting out. Maybe they're actually um, subletting the properties, so to speak, on Airbnb. So it's pretty meta in terms of you've got a property that you're renting that you're then subdividing and renting out a small bedroom on. So if you were to look at Airbnb as call it an asset management business or an investment business, there are all sorts of shapes and sizes to which those assets attribute themselves. Um, If you look at the supply and the demand of those assets, depending on travel corridors, depending on if there's a massive event that takes place in London that leads to a whole bunch of travelers visiting those sort of shapes and sizes might actually change where suddenly it's not a bedroom, but it's an entire home that gets rented out. And the family that's renting the home goes and lives in Lancashire. It's it's infinite in terms of the ways that you can chop it up because the market is so absolutely massive. And there's this whole concept of elasticity of supply and elasticity of demand, which I think, you know, makes Airbnb very unique vis-a-vis what you see with booking.com or what you see with a lot of property management businesses, because people can literally activate those properties at a moment's notice. They can click a button on the Airbnb website. They can vacate that property and decide that they're going to go be somewhere else for that weekend. And suddenly you've got supply on the site. And so it's an asset like none other. It's an investment opportunity like none other. And there are hosts who actually raise funds to effectively what you'd call a loan. But an investment fund is a fair way to describe it to actually run an Airbnb hosting service. And in those circumstances, you can make some pretty juicy returns in very short periods of time, particularly if there's just massive or significant demand for properties. And you can predict that. There's a predictive forecasting algorithm on Airbnb's website. It used to be called, what's my place worth? You could literally put the dates in, sort of a clock or a timer that would tell you what the average nightly price would be during that particular time period. They're actually, based on time series data, based on data that's evolved across the website over the past 15 years, enough data to to create a relatively accurate picture of how people can accrue returns. You're bringing up a really interesting theme here, 
which is related to the whole alt space, which is we've lived in this low interest rate environment where people now have had to search for yield. Because they've had to search for yield, it's brought them towards different types of investments that they can generate yields on. It could be in the equities world, it could be private equity, it could be private companies, it could be venture, it could be more esoteric assets like sports cards. It could also be the real estate space. Between your experience at Airbnb and then investing in companies like Picasso, how do you think about real estate as an asset class when it comes to the investment side of it? And where do you think that's going? Because we're now seeing a lot more venture-backed businesses. Think about these businesses maybe partially as a marketplace, but also partially as an asset management business, or they might be trying to build a REIT. How do you think about the evolution of that in the context of new investment products for investors based on underlying technology or marketplaces that are built? Picasso was an investment that my colleague Sarah prosecuted, and she's very, very close to the business. But I've known Austin Allison, the founder, since I want to say 2014, something along those lines. He's a fantastic serial entrepreneur. My perception of the opportunity with Picasso and with the category as a whole is um, that it's a new asset that's fractionalized an opportunity that people were somewhat familiar with in the past around timeshares. But it's also expanded and sort of blown open that market from the very early stages all the way through to the very high-end properties. What you get with a platform like that is the opportunity on the guest side or the owner side, live wherever you could possibly want to in a setting that you can only really dream of more flexibly than you would have been able to just a couple of years ago in the world of timeshares. But you can also accrue you know, that yield over you know, a relatively short period of time or depending on how the market plays out. You can assess whether you want to be in a property that's in a you know, high growth real estate area or something that's maybe more stable. And I think that only time will tell. We have data around sort of the timeshare industry. We have data around the real estate investment world. But these new assets, these fractionalized assets, I think are going to require some more fine tuning and understanding of what that yield could be. How do you think about institutionalization of these products? Are these the types of products that can be institutionalized where institutional investors will either buy them or they'll be packaging up of these investments, whether whether it's securitization or REITs or whatever, and you'll start to see institutional capital flow into them? Or if not, what needs to happen for institutional investors to get comfortable? I think that there are institutional opportunities for timeshares already. There are several sort of securities that we've seen. And based on that proxy or that precedent, I have no doubt in my mind that the fractional side of the industry is going to become something more and more prominent. That said, I think that there needs to be a lot more data. I think that there are a variety of upstarts in the category that are emerging. Give it another year, two years, three years. As we've seen, there have been some significant price fluctuations over the past year. So we need to see those prices even out a little bit and create some more reliable data, a more reliable trend for retail and institutional investors to, to find it appealing. But but there's no doubt in my mind. When you think about investing in these businesses and you're having conversations with the founders early on in a company like Picasso, something like that, is part of their thesis really around the asset management side? Or is that something that generally develops over time with a lot of these real estate marketplaces or businesses that are trying to think about asset ownership in a different way, but more on the side of the consumer or the supply side rather than the investable asset side? I think it's top of mind from day one as part of the North Star 
and what emerges when you really knock it out of the park. But in the early days, I think it's about execution. And I think it's really about focusing on the supply side and making sure that you have extremely high quality supply. For example, you might end up with supply that um, does not convert. You may end up with supply that actually just um, burns money, you're going to have to deactivate that supply, you're going to have to fine tune that supply and just make sure that you, know, you only have supply ultimately, you know, one year out, two years out, three years out, that ends up converting that ends up being meaningful within a specific band within a specific kind of benchmark. And so I think that's always top of mind as an opportunity, but I don't think it's something that's as actionable from the outset especially with businesses that have a varied set of real estate assets. If, if there's something that's extremely consistent, then maybe it's easier to implement something like that from day one. But if you got something that's much more varied, I think it takes a bit more time. What excites you most about the real estate space? The real estate space, I've done marketplaces pretty significantly. I've done fintech quite significantly. I really like this. I still love the sharing economy. I love the concept of the sharing economy. I love the concept of light, nimble, elastic real estate. And I love the idea, especially off the back of this, you know, pandemic and remote work, that real estate is something that's flexible and that people can feel comfortable being part of an asset class like the Airbnb supply, call it, on a you know broad basis where that supply can um, fluctuate in terms of its value and that it can convert across sort of various events and seasons. And what excites me as a VC concept of it all is a very, very high margin real estate prop tech supply that can weather any challenging economy like we've seen with with Airbnb. When you say something like sharing economy or mention <clears throat> what Airbnb has done, where my mind goes is that it was kind of the precursor of fractionalization of assets. And now fast forward to the alt space, we've seen fractionalization of all types of assets. And I guess in Airbnb's case, it's not just assets, it's experiences. But you're fractionalizing things in assets in ways that really hadn't been able to do this before. And now you go to the crypto space, fractionalization is a big component of why crypto is so appealing to the consumer because consumer doesn't have to buy a full Bitcoin. They can buy a tenth or a hundredth of a Bitcoin and then they can still own that asset. As you think about the crypto space, which you've spent a lot of time in now, both as a direct investor into companies and into funds. What do you think are some of the lessons you learned from Airbnb in your time at a place that was really fractionalizing assets in a sense? And how do you apply that to the, the world of crypto? If I look at Airbnb and I look specifically at the payment side of things, currency volatility is something that rationalized the value of having a Forex practice inside of the business. I think that there's a lot of fractionalization that took place constantly and very dynamically across the supply side of the platform. But being able to manage the shifting and sort of the elasticity again of that supply side from a payment standpoint was extremely challenging. There were so many different types of currencies. There were so many different currency payment services, payment providers, payment gateways, KYC processes that we had to go through, that it was a real tangle, a real quagmire and a challenge. I think that if you look at you know crypto, as you say, a fractionalization of cryptocurrencies, the fact that you can buy fractional Ethereum and Bitcoin and a lot of other altcoins even, I think uh, really helped benefit platforms like Airbnb from a payment standpoint, where you don't have to constantly be worried about currency conversion and you don't have to constantly be worried about speed of wiring 
a dollar and then having it be converted. I think that there's a whole area underneath the entire payment system that crypto's pioneering that allows for payments globally and that creates a seamless opportunity for the likes of Airbnb. If you look at markets like challenging currency markets, call it in Latin America or in Eastern Europe or various other places, hosts being able to be paid out via cryptocurrency will continue to enable that fractional economy. If people are paid out in currencies that have deflated or have inflated or have had some severe issues in very short periods of time, then it's not going to be as easy. And so I think crypto is turning into a major solution for these fractional marketplace economies, for sure. On that point, you're also an investor in global payroll business deal, which also handles payroll globally. And you mentioned something like Airbnb, which effectively, it's not a quote unquote company in the same way that it has, you don't have W-2s. But to your point, many of these hosts want payouts, the equivalent of payroll for a company in crypto. Why do you think that is? And do you see this being a continued trend where many companies, particularly for people in certain countries or regions of the world to want to get pay out, paid out in crypto? Yeah, I think there's been a massive demand for crypto payroll. Businesses want to pay their teams using crypto and then team members who want to get paid in crypto. Deal itself has seen a very significant month over month growth in terms of demand for crypto salary payments north of 10% per month. 2%, some stats on deal, 2% of payments were withdrawn in crypto between July and December of 2021. About $4.7 million was paid out to employees in crypto via deal in December 2021. And that was up around 50% from November. In terms of withdrawals by region, Latin America exceeds 50% of the withdrawals, whereas EMEA is like 35%, and then the rest of the world accounts for the rest. That probably gives you a bit of perspective in terms of the markets and where is experiencing that volatility. But it's fair to say that it's here to stay and that the opportunity is one where everyone's benefiting from it. The other exciting evolution in terms of crypto payments is in the world of DAOs, where I think decentralization, you've studied these ad infinitum in the alt space, but obviating the opportunity to be paid in fiat currency is just impossible. And the complexity around payments, if you were to try doing it you know, via fiat, is enormous. And the regulatory challenges and everything else just makes it difficult. So deals partnering up with a whole bunch of DAOs and enabling their success. That's a really interesting point there, because where that takes my mind to is, what some of these more traditional Web2 companies are doing in terms of payroll or crypto payouts, do you think that that will, over time, as things like DAOs become more common and people actually start to work for DAOs as maybe their place of employment, that could be how they spend their time. If they are DAO contributors, they monetize by getting paid from these DAOs or, or they're in the Web3 world. Do you think that the advent of deal providing crypto payouts in the Web2 context or other companies, we've got Airbnb doing this. Do you think that will be what makes the idea of crypto payouts going mainstream and then more people in five, 10 years from now, as they get on ramp to the crypto economy, will just, it'll be accepted for them to, to get paid out in crypto? Absolutely. I think it's being necessitated day by day by the things that we're seeing happen globally, by the markets, by geopolitical issues. I think that crypto and alts, broadly speaking, including NFTs, it's turning into a completely new and different economy. 
And I think that we've got a couple of very, very exciting startups and massive businesses pioneering some of these efforts, but it's still extremely early days. And who's to say that they won't be displacing or you know replacing currency as we know it? And that's kind of part of the dream, but we're already seeing that begin. That's fascinating. I want to make sure we cover all the different things you're doing in crypto because you're not only investing in companies, as I mentioned, you're investing in funds as well. So why invest in funds as a VC fund yourself? And how do you think about the difference of investing in funds versus directs and why? Our perspective is that if we align ourselves with really strong funds where the founders of the funds have a sense for regulatory, they have a sense for the guardrails of the world of crypto because they've been in it for very long periods of time, or they're just umbilically connected to key decision makers in the government and beyond that we'll be able to make smarter decisions. Um, if we look at Thomas Bailey, for example, he was an investor in a whole variety of crypto deals from the early days, invested in the likes of Tagomi at The Seed and a variety of others and has seen you know great returns as an angel investor. But also partnered up with Justin Musinich, who is the former head of the treasury, in order to develop a, a fund that really is cognizant of the direction of regulatory change and make investments off the back of very informed mind decisions. We're able to you know, ask questions that we would ordinarily not be able to and riff and ideate with him on very early stage, very late stage ideas, both in the United States, but also globally, because he has that visibility. That's one angle that we care a lot about. We've also invested in Han Ventures, which is Katie Han's fund. She's an incredible investor. And her perspective, leaving Andreessen in an interview on CNBC, is that there's no growth uh, in the comfort zone. And she's looking to grow and she's looking to help build out this new era of crypto with the new era of investors and brought on Chris Lehane from Airbnb folks who are early at Coinbase as members of her team. And so she's so embedded in the ecosystem. She's so embedded in the market. And she's also taking a very collaborative approach where she's investing with everybody across the spectrum globally on crypto that our sense is that she's going to be great eyes and ears in terms of the market, but also will be able to see around corners in terms of everything from you know political to regulatory changes. So for us, we view it as almost a sort of pioneer or guiding light type of an approach when we place investments in crypto funds. What do you look for in a crypto manager? And what are the types of skills and qualities you think they need to have to operate? Which, given your pr perspective as a venture investor, be fascinating because you're an investor yourself. But what do you think they have to do differently? as a crypto investor. Interestingly, again, Justin Musinich, he was part of the US government for a number of years in a very important capacity and has a variety of connections that enable an understanding of regulatory that goes way beyond our capabilities. And, and there's an unfair advantage on that front. Thomas Bailey is also very connected with the Cambridge Associates team. And he's also made some very significant early stage investments. And so he rounds out that relationship in a very exciting way. We as investors are generalists, and we've invested in businesses across fintech, software, consumer, and biotech. We've invested in healthcare. We view ourselves as shrewd investors at the very early stages through to growth. But if we can have a prepared mind off the back, again, of a relationship that goes beyond our own network, that helps us. Same with Katie Hahn, as mentioned. So then how do you delineate between when it makes sense to invest in a fund versus when it makes sense to invest into crypto companies or maybe even 
tokens. Our sense is that we can do both simultaneously and we can co-invest with funds, you know, that we've invested in. We'll just have a, you know, better sense for the capabilities of a founder or the capabilities of a team, the competitive landscape. We'll understand it better because we'll have the accrued wisdom and knowledge of that fund that we've invested in. We view them as partners and we view them as folks who will reap the benefits with us to the extent that we bring them an investment opportunity as well. So are we going to see a GFC crypto fund of funds sometime soon? I think internally, we're very focused on building out our own direct practice and making sure that we're of a sound mind when it comes to investing in crypto opportunities across the US, Latin America, Canada, Europe, Asia. For context, we've invested in the likes of Animoca in Southeast Asia, but also in you know Taxbit and in Verto, which is uh, storage for NFTs. We're building out our own acumen and our own understanding of crypto from being able to invest in tokens to investing in crypto infrastructure. We're mapping out the space and just building out our understanding in this sort of new era. So you say you're mapping out the space and it sounds like you've done everything from infrastructure custody investments like Verto to another infrastructure investment in a different way like Taxbit. How do you think about the crypto space and what are the themes that excite you most? At this stage, we're very, very excited about the infrastructure piece. And I think it's, you know, something that allows us to take almost a portfolio approach to a lot of the other verticals that are being built out in the category. Investing directly in an NFT, for example, is a little riskier than investing in a storage platform for NFTs. And so we're going after businesses that act as almost the bedrock or that act as a protective insurance layer across the entire space that sort of index the entire space and really trying to build out the picks and shovels with those founders. I think fundamentally, given our entrepreneurial experience and our experience building businesses, those infrastructure plays dovetail with what we've done. So to the extent that they're building out business development and partnerships teams, for example, we can actually contribute. We can come in and we can help them hire. We can help them interview candidates. We can help them set KPIs and metrics. And we, help, we can help them build out their marketing programs. We feel right now that the, the infrastructure side of it, call it uh, the picks and shovels, are, are of, you know, paramount interest. We're also interested in businesses that deal with fintech across the crypto side of things. We're investors in a business called Pebble, which is a neobank for crypto. They were in YC's current batch. I believe they're actually going to be you know, presenting at next demo day though. And it's a credit card or a crypto credit card, call it. And it's still evolving. I mean, they're going to do debit as well, very likely, that just makes crypto accessible to all. And there are a whole variety of these plays in the market, but we felt like the founder of Pebble was just the very best. That's another example of something that we're excited about. How different is it when you look at a more traditional company or infrastructure play in the crypto space, when you look at underwriting that business versus a traditional B2B SaaS business or a consumer Web2 business that you'd underwrite? Is it very similar because it's still company, it's still you're investing equity. The company may be servicing the crypto economy, but it's not a token or a protocol. So is there much difference in how you would look at, evaluate, and underwrite one of these companies? Or is it actually very similar, just a different end market that they're serving? It would seem that it would be very similar. But I think the fact of the matter is that crypto is evolving. And there are a lot of blind spots and areas that people are still discovering that they're still building. So I think that investing in a crypto infrastructure business is more challenging than investing in uh, its contemporary. There's got to be a, a bigger leap of faith in terms of investing in a crypto opportunity, regardless of the scenario, but on the infrastructure side, they're going to be more holes and they're going to be 
maybe more areas that need to be built out by the founder. But one of our perspectives is that we enjoy investing in founders from traditional industries who are building that infrastructure side of things. For example, we invested in a business called Breach Insurance that was founded by an eight-year Liberty veteran and he's building insurance for crypto exchanges. We take comfort in the fact that he really understands the insurance industry rather than taking a pure crypto angle because he's able to kick the tires on all the problems that would apply crypto to this very real world problem. We really like finding founders who have experience sort of across that more traditional industry as well as crypto ideally. So as you think about the crypto space, obviously there's been tremendous growth. It's still, in many respects, very early days, $2 trillion, roughly speaking, of global crypto market cap. To put that in context, that's not really bigger than one of the larger fangs, Facebook, et cetera, in terms of market cap. There's still a long way to go. Do you think that crypto has reached the point where there's the point of no return and that crypto is here to stay? Or are you still somewhat skeptical of crypto being a thing. Crypto's here to stay. We're extremely excited about crypto. We wear the crypto hoodie proudly. We're all in. We're very, very excited about this the space where it converts globally everyone across Global Founders Capital. I think that we're trying to understand more about the very quickly evolving space every single day, hence some of the fund investments. Also, we've become very close with all of our founders. I think that there's going to be a failure rate across the category, just like we've seen with any other startup category. We think that being able to support founders who are maybe more crypto heavy and less, call it operations or traditional startup heavy, is something that we're drawn to and that's very, very important to our approach. Our perspective is that there are going to be a whole variety of gargantuan businesses that are going to emerge from the category. That said, this rebirth of crypto or crypto acceleration has really, we can't mistake the fact that it's really been across the past two years, three years, four years, maybe 2018, people experienced sort of a, a you know winter for quite a long period of time prior to that. And so while there is a lot of excitement, I think it's important to try to do your work and understand what's really happening behind the scenes by leveraging your network, by building out your friend base and being able to just kick the tires very, very well. You've lived through multiple tech cycles, both from the banking side to your time on the operating side to your time in venture and now crypto. Do you feel comfortable riding the waves of maybe a potential bear market in one of these cycles? And if so, why? What gives you the confidence and, and the excitement about both tech and crypto having lived through other cycles that make you, even in potential down market in either crypto or tech, excited about those spaces? We're very fortunate to be doing a lot of very early stage or seed investing. So we have to take you know a very long-term perspective, which enables us to weather cycles or emerge during particular cycles when things are either up or they're down. But investing early stage gives us the opportunity to collaborate very, very closely with entrepreneurs and get ahead of these things. If we were doing purely Series E F investing, I think the challenges would be greater in terms of picking and choosing. I think that if you're investing at the very early stages, they're going to be tons of twists and turns in areas where 
you know, their gaps and, and need for support. And because we've built businesses ourselves, because we've sold businesses like City Deal to Groupon, we've built businesses like Airbnb, HelloFresh, Delivery Hero from the early days on, we're able to help very young entrepreneurs succeed and understand where they need support and how to approach the market, how to fundraise, how to build out their teams further, how to view competition. We can really support them, which, you know, is an area that I don't think a lot of funds really focus on or, or find value in, but that's who we are. That's that's great to hear. And it's exciting to hear so much enthusiasm for the crypto space and, and even just tech in general. As early stage investors, you have to predict five, seven, 10 years out what the world might look like and you don't know. And that's why you have to keep you know finding great companies to invest in, backing great founders and all of that. I want to end this podcast on a question that I ask everyone on the podcast, which is, what is your favorite or most interesting alternative investment? Well, so I have Kobe Bryant's Topps Chrome uh, rookie card, which I'm just, there's so much sentimental value attached to that card that it makes me cry every time I think about it. Kobe was the best player, honestly, in basketball ever. Followed him very closely, have a lot of friends who actually knew him. And the card itself is a beautiful card. The price on it has fluctuated quite a bit through COVID and and beyond. And I think that it's something that's going to go down in in history over time. I think his story is incredible. I think he's part of the fabric of basketball. So that's a fascinating example. We're going to have to connect you with Lior from Alt, who is also on the podcast and has a huge Kobe collection and is a prolific card collector. And you guys can talk Kobe's. It brings up an interesting point, though, because the passion that you show for this card and the sentimental value it has, it also may increase in value as an asset. How would you think about that if it were to ever get to a price point where you might say, oh, wow, this is worth a lot of money. Would I want to sell it? How would you think about that? Would you think about selling it? Would you never part with it? And would you try to find a way to lend against it? Similar to like if you owned a really valuable NFT. I think it's a fascinating concept in the alt space of how do you think about these assets that are not just, they don't just have meaningful monetary value, but they may have meaningful sentimental or community value. How would you think about an asset like that? Look, I think your podcast with Nicholas from SoRare was absolutely incredible in demonstrating how collectible NFTs, soccer cards are all about engagement and are all about community and people being able to share and understand what, what other folks have with the physical card space. There's a similar dynamic. And that dynamic is that friends love to collect cards together. They love to trade cards. They love to be part of that ecosystem. There's an online to offline. There's an offline to online trend constantly going on in these categories. And I think that in terms of my Kobe card, it's something that I love to proudly show to my friends. It's something that I love to share with friends. I think that it's something that I could potentially part with a, a fraction of across the likes of Rally Road or other platforms like that. But I think that ultimately the sentimental value of being attached to that card, of being attached to that era in history means a lot to me. There's a lot that the alt space is going to have to figure out as it continues to develop because I think you bring up some really interesting nuances to owning assets that are quite interesting and sentimental, but also potentially have financial value to certain people. So, Don... It was awesome to have you on the Alco's Mainstream Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show. You rock. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks for listening to this episode of Alco's Mainstream. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find more episodes of the podcast at any of your favorite podcast sites, and you can read more about alts at my Substack, altgoesmainstream.substack.com, and follow me on Twitter at, at Michael Stigmore and at GoesAlt. Thanks a lot, and have a great day. We're going mainstream.